This is One Hate Minute. Drop of a hat, these guys will rock and roll. What's your name? Wayne Grove. Look like gangbangers working the local 7-Eleven. Robbery homicides take you. Give me all you got! Listen. Give me all you got! I do what I do best. I take scores. You do what you do best. I'm trying to stop guys like me. A podcast dedicated to all 170 minutes of Michael Mann's L.A. crime opus Heat, one minute at a time. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to One Hit Minute. I'm your host, Blake Howard, and joining me today, there's no better introduction for me to introduce the person I'm talking to today, um, a television writer, an actor in LA, than to read you his email. My Maybe my favorite ever email I've received for One Hit Minute. It says, um, random story, but I used to be an actor. Former actor, now mainly a writer. I used to be an actor. I had an opportunity to be Val Kilmer's stand-in on a movie back in 2007. It was called Columbus Day, and sadly, despite an awesome script, didn't totally come together. Anyway, I would hound him for Heat stories. And my favourite, that leading up to shooting Heat when he was filming Batman, Michael Mann encouraged him to carry around a loaded 38 in his pocket throughout the day just to get the feel the spirit of what it was to be a guy like Chris. And if I'm recalling correctly, it scared the hell out of the costume department on Batman when they find it in and out of wardrobe. How badass is that? Ladies and gentlemen, welcome Mr. Adam Frost. Oh, Blake, pleasure to be here. Um, I, <laughs> that is I, the best story of almost <laughs> all time. That's an all-timer. I called my friend Maria Lewis, one of my best friends. I got your email late at night in Australian time, and I called her and I said, you need to hear this. I know you're not a big fan of Heat, but you need to hear about Joel Schumacher's wardrobe department being terrified of Val Kilmer carrying around a loaded gun. I'm, I'm, I'm hoping I didn't make that part up, but uh, <laughs> yeah, that, that's, that's the story that's stuck in my head anyway. Oh, that's so great. Well, thank you so much for being a part of the show. I appreciate it. Absolutely. Um, yeah, I, I was so excited. I... I you know, I, I heard on Twitter that there was this podcast happening and I, you know, I'm not a big fanboy when it comes to stuff, but when I, you know, I, I you know, I, I've been to Comic-Con, it's just sort of not my thing. But when I heard that there was a heat podcast, I was like, this is my Comic-Con. So I'm, <laughs> I'm, uh, I'm honored to be here. It's, it's, it, it, that movie, this movie has sort of left an impression indelible impression on me along the way and uh yeah i just i'm thrilled to talk about it well look we've got adam has some great stories that he's he's been teasing me via email as we've been staying in touch since his first email um to talk about but we've got a really ripping minute here um uh, i i love now we're we're sort of on the downhill slope of this movie and a major character in the early part of the movie sort of feels like she's sidelined for a little while, but we now get Charlene Chahalis, who pretty much has some of the the peak crescendo moments of this entire film, one of the strongest and sort of most memorable um, characters. So we're starting to get back with Charlene. We're opening up this window and the and the chaos and the collateral damage of these guys and their heist is front and center. So Adam and I are going to watch this minute. For folks out there, it is the 124th minute again. Um, as a reminder, two hours and three minutes on the dial. It is uh, on the original theatrical cut of Heat. So if you're listening and you're trying to play along at home and you have the Blu-ray Definitive Edition or on Video On Demand on HD, it might be seconds out, but just we'll, we'll play you the high-def audio so you can listen and know exactly what we're up to. So I'm going to throw to this right now. Adam and I are going to watch it, and then we're going to come back and unpack this and tell more Heat stories. 
slimy piece of shit. Well, you want it out from under, right? You're scared to death, right? You want out, this is out, Charlene. Yeah, what's your end? Hey, you stupid broad. Hey, 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 easy. Huh? You heard me. She had a rough ride. You fix her a drink or something. Look in the cabinet above the sink. Fuck her. You better get All in right, there and right. stay in there. My name is Sergeant Drucker, LAPD Homicide. You want to put Dominic in the bedroom? He stays with me. There. Oh, another great minute. Another one. Another one. <laughs> so much good stuff. Like, you know, you think these interstitial minutes, you think, oh, are they gonna are they gonna have it? And so much good stuff. Hank Azario being oh. a grade A asshole, just again and again in this movie, as um uh, as Marciano. And Drucker, oh, and he's ripping that great '90s suit. Just <laughs> it's, oh, I love it. It's it's so and and so so. What was with jackets in the '90s? They were just massive. They were just so they big. Were huge. Look at how big that jacket is. I love it. And I mean, yeah, uh, Judge's pants are pretty awesome too. Oh, she's got great pants choices. And yeah, McKelty Williamson when he walks up to when he when he would walk up to you and say, "Go and you better go in there and you stay in there." Now that's a serious. That is a serious confrontation. He is a big lad. He is a, an intimidating man. Yeah, and I love, I mean, really it's sort of the, we're getting right to the almost the best part of this minute, but when he he holds that stare, you know, I feel like so many actors, there's a, there's a way to sort of really bluster that up, but he just, he just holds that look. And, you know, of course, man, is so smart just to keep the camera going just a little bit longer and you see him just hold, like he, the way he just, blast her coldly blast him so coldly like that i just that's best to me it's it's a really like i'm trying to think adam like you as a writer and actor and a film fan it's like the the reveal here is really excellent because the music is swelling it's not doing too much it's sort of atmosphere if you like it's sort of happening but it's not uh it's like a drone and mm-hmm. it's droning as they come in. And in so many movies that I can think of, when you realize that someone's with the cops, they make a lot of pomp and circumstance about it. Like they open the door and all the cops are there. And they go somewhere and the cops are like, oh, well, hello. And like there's more of a reveal and there's a shock and whatever. And I kind of love the lack of ceremony in this setup because it's tense and she's kind of looking around going, oh, this looks nice. You know, we're in Venice. This looks nice. You know, this is a nice little getaway. And there's just two surveillance cops just having a cup of coffee, just chilling, like in the kitchen. And she's like, oh, like they, oh, don't, they, don't, they, don't, they don't go, oh, hello, Miss Shahela. They don't like, there's no, uh, I don't know. There's no arrogance. They're just like, oh, yeah, we're here. Like we're here. Oh, so it's such a great reveal. I mean, it even even at the top of the minute, just, just before we sort of go inside the apartment, man starts outside the apartment and you see, you know, there's just an, an extra ambling around. Hmm. And I want to talk about man's use of extras because it is just unparalleled the way he gets crowds. But anyway, uh, you sort of, I just love the way it sort of lingers on the outside. And then instead of, yeah, instead of doing this sort of grand, uh, wide shot, we sort of, we sort of track inside with her. And of course, if ever, you know, she, she walks in, she's looking around sort of, you know, trepidatiously, and of course, the heat is around the corner. <laughs> it like, is literally, it around, is around the corner. <laughs> oh, 
oh, it's so good. And then, you know, he doesn't just have like these cops brooding and sort of guns out. He's got, you know, the guy's like taking a sip of coffee. You know, it's just like this is this is such a sort of um, a gentle but powerful punch yeah. to this character. And it's it's and you love so in in a couple of minutes that we see ahead. So we've we've got you know there's minute minutes around um, what we're recording right now, um, an, an upcoming minute where we reveal what it's like when Neil first encounters Edie after the heist. And I, I find there's oh. some great parallels that come up in, in those two moments, which is in this moment, Vans, uh, not, sorry, not Van Sant, they're both douchebags, which is why I got the confused. Marciano, so Hank Azaria's character, he just can't help himself but act like a douchebag. And I just love the inter, like that, that interaction and that dynamic is because this guy clearly, he's, he's got his back against the wall and the way that he's, he feels like he's got to still maintain power because we've seen him pretty much powerless every time he's not been with Charlene. Like when he's with the cops, he's got this big, bald, intimidating Nevada cop sitting at his desk, barking orders at him. That's fine. He's got Pacino on his face, great ass, like screaming at him, shocked and, and bewildered here. And so he comes back and he's like, oh, you want out, Charlene? Like he's trying to do his, his power trip. And then obviously Michael T. Williamson's Drucker steps in and does it. But I just love that straight away she's like, oh, right, what's your end? You know, what what what, what do you get out of this? Because she knows that that's what the bargain is. And he just can't help but act like a dick instead of going, "This, you want out? Like, there's two ways you can read that line, right? It's like, you want it out, this is out. If we flip. But there was none of that. It was like complete arrogance and nonsense and swagger that's all just false. I know, and he plays it so well, just sort of smarmy, uninvested. He's about to just absolutely detonate this woman's life. <laughs> yes. And he's still like, fuck her, I'm not going to get her a drink, you know? And, and it's just, uh, I just love his indifference and callousness. And, and Hank Azaria, man, talk about like, you know, these sort of hallmark performances. That guy just continues to just hit it out of the park with these these roles. Um, well, it, was it the same year? I'm going to have to IMD live IMDB on one heat minute. It's almost the same year from memory that Hank Azaria did the birdcage and one yeah, heat minute. I think, right. I think, right. yeah, I think yeah. it's like the same. <laughs> I think it's the same year. And if that's the case, it's like, Oh my God, what a one, two punch. Al Pacino screaming in your face and then Robin Williams screaming. Yeah, it's like one year after another. He's two consecutive roles. Agador in the birdcage, which is amazing. Um, and obviously, um, uh, and Alan Marciano in Heat, back to back. Wow. And so different too. I mean, it's just wow. Uh, hats off to that guy because boy, does he play a, 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 a dickhead <laughs> in a great way, right? Yes, he does. Also, we, we touched on Charlene there. So sorry, just to, to go back to my point about mirroring scenes. In the upcoming scene, and I dive into it with a, a great guest, Brendan Hodges, in a couple of minutes. So I'm not going to steal that episode's thunder, but it's just in in two really consecutive scenes I love in this movie, and you continue to sort of unfold these mirroring scenes where you expect a certain reaction based on a reveal of information, and the characters just give you something completely hostile that tries to maintain their posture, their power, their control of the scene. Whereas in this scene, we know we know already that, Hank Azaria's Alan Marciano is pretty powerless to this situation. He's already been 
he's already been flipped by the police. Um, but I think what's really cool about this scene, if you look at the comparisons of the two women, and I think you know we, we can talk about that, is Charlene is, after the initial shock, she knows the game already. What's your end? Like, that line tells you so much more about Charlene than you need. Like, you already know she's wily. You already know she's a survivor. You already know she's been in this grind for some time. But, like, that one line, what's your end? She knows that he's he's been paid off or he's he's done something dodgy that has got him into trouble and they've, they, they're using something against him. I love that, that instantaneously that one line from her just reveals so much about her experience and knowing what this game is. Absolutely. And it... And it <clears throat> It just sort of tees up to me that sort of perfect, and, and you might have talked about this in other pod, in other episodes, but that sort of Michael Mann moment where she knows now, because she knows the game, that it's like she's going to have to have that decision. Yes. Um, you know, it's that it's that it's that Michael Mann moment where everything's going to hinge on a dime. It's like we see it over and over, you know, where, whether it's, you know, um, when he goes to Breeden in the diner, I know we're not allowed to talk about other minutes, but no, it's like a recurring Adam, theme. Adam, Adam, where, where the, the dis, we're like Neil McCauley on this podcast. We have a discipline and then repeatedly we break it. So you're absolutely yeah, allowed to we talk about other it. minutes. <laughs> we're going to break it over and over again to our detriment if we have to, but yeah, no, no, I agree. Keep going. But I, I really do think that sort of the, the some of the genius that Michael Mann does in his writing specifically, because you know I, I I I got the screenplay when it was a hard copy, you know, back in Toronto, um, and and I wanted to see what he was doing and and to see like he loves those moments where someone has to decide it's all in you're uh, you know you, you either you either drive the car, Braden, or you don't, and you know it's like this is your moment or. Uh, and this is all, this is this this minute sort of sets up the next where she's going to have to be faced with that choice, you know, betray Chris or betray Don. Like. And he likes to tie it into how people see themselves. I think that's a really great point that you just nailed, which is in that drive or don't drive for Breeden. For him, it's like, do I do the thing that I know that I'm good at, that I'm that will fulfill me, that that I've spent my whole life, even though. You know, I went to jail and all those things. Do I do I do the thing that is going to satiate my soul for like even just for a brief moment, or do I keep living out this torture? And similarly with Charlene, I think it's a it's a whole other dimension because she's like, do I protect this kid? Like, do I protect like do I protect this kid? And she knows, even though the bargaining is sort of happening, and we're seeing the very like the, just the gestation of like this bargain. But yeah. right from that first minute. She's like, Dominic stays with me. And I think yeah, that in that moment, Drucker knows he's got it too. And man knows that we've got it because it's like, it's like, oh, well, she's got the kid. No, I, I couldn't agree more. And it's like, to me, it distills sort of who these characters are, whether it's Chirito deciding like, you know, for me, the action is the juice or, yeah. you know, it's like, or, 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 you know, Trejo giving them up or it's these, these, these sort of, it distills. And, and just like, um, you know, with her, we sort of see like who she really is. Well, it sort of, it, it evolves, of course, cause she doesn't sort of sell out Chris, but, um, it's just a beautiful way of sort of distilling these characters. Yeah. For who they Cause, because her choice on a dime is, do I take the risk to cut him loose? Because if they catch me, we're all gone. Yeah. Or do I not? And then when yeah. she sees his beaten up and battered and almost unrecognizable Val Kilmer face in those like brief moments, 
It's like, he looks like decades older in that moment. It's so funny is that as we lead up to this moment, I'll just tell you, Adam, because I think it, we, we definitely would have touched on it in other episodes. And I believe in the episode that it directly precedes us with Bilga Ibiri. He said that if you wanted to, if all of cinema was lost, the whole, some catastrophic event, and you wanted to teach people about the power of cinema, his thought was the only scene you need is the scene where Charlene does the hand gesture. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> And he's like, that's the only scene you need to teach people about the power of cinema, how to emote, you know, how to move a camera, how to distill and convey information with silence. It's like, you just need that one scene and that's it. That's the piece de resistance. And I think as we're rolling and mounting towards that scene and I'm remembering um, that scene coming up, I'm like, it's, I love to see the groundwork now in this scene about how it's informing what's coming up. Like really right now, you know, this poor mother has a child is thinks she's got an out with this guy Marciano and he's a complete trap as well. So now like her traps completely burned and she has to go on the offensive. It's no longer the Charlene who's crying on the phone going, God damn it, Chris, you rat bastard. It's like immediately she, her, she, her game face is on. He stays. In, yeah. He stays with me. What's your end? You know? And so she, she just becomes a powerhouse here and gets so much great screen time in the coming minutes. And this minute too. Yeah, no, I mean, her, her sort of, her, her sort of um, trajectory in this movie, and especially, like, it's just fascinating to me how she sort of navigates, especially the, the, the situation with the cops, because she says she will betray Chris. She sort of gets the best of both worlds, you know, out of all these guys, which is really shows how smart she is. Yeah, she's uh, she's she's not someone who's helpless in this moment. She's way less helpless than Marciano. Marciano's screwed. Marciano's yeah. like, if they don't get the information, they might just bust Marciano because they don't like him, you know, because he's a jerk. But she seems very smart, very calculating. And I think that what's cool, like even on that final still, you know, again, this is a credit to Michael T. Williamson's like face. In the final still, he's looking at her and the look that's on his face he knows she's formidable. Like he's not looking at someone who's helpless. He's looking at someone he knows he's got to negotiate with and he, and, and, and he's got to, he's got to earn the trust. Um, but he knows that she's formidable. She's not this weak person. That's just going to bend or, or buckle like Azaria. Like he's, he's weak and he's like, he sees her and he's like, she's smart. She's a survivor. And, and she knows that she essentially doesn't really have to do too much, um, to, for her to survive. But now she's got Dominic you know, I love to think, you know, I can't remember who I've talked to this about. It might be many themes of the show. And I'm sure this is, this is the same for you, Adam. It's like, I love thinking about where the guys, where the characters in Heat came from. Like, this is not her first rodeo. This is not the first time she's been interrogated by cops. You would imagine that, right? In her life. Oh, yeah, for sure. You know, she's been around it. She's been sort of, you know, uh, uh, like a moth to the light of the, the sort of bad guys, you know, like she just, that's, that's to me, she just seems that's her type. Yes. Um, for better or worse, for better, well, or, for better. For worse, I, I would say. Yeah. So, but it's like, you know, instantly the way that she's carrying herself, um, this is the big difference I like to point out between Australians and Americans is like when an Australian um, if an Australian person gets pulled over in a, like an Australian cop show 
like in a car or gets visited by the police, it's a huge deal. Like the Australian person feels like they're guilty immediately and acts like they're guilty, even if they've done nothing. Like they'll just think if a cop comes up, it's like, oh my God, did I go through that, you know, orange, was that light to amber before it turned to red that I went red? Like they'll just think of every bad thing they've done. Maybe it's this like the fundamental of being like, the you know you know when when this place was invaded by the British that it was essentially like a penal colony, um, so maybe it's that penal colony you know mindset. It's like everyone feels like they're in trouble when you watch an American TV show. Usually, like say like Law and Order, which is like so pervasive on Australian telly, everyone just keeps working. Like they go to a mechanic and the guy's just still tinkering on a car. Like that would not be an Australian mechanic. That that mechanic would be sitting down thinking, God. I didn't pay my taxes last year. I, you know, he, it, it, there's this guilt thing as well. But I, in this scene, what resonates with me is that Marciano's braggadocio, that BS that he's trying to act all tough, is him knowing his guilt and is him showing his cards and feeling really authentic because he's like, he, he doesn't, he knows he's in the worst position out of the both of them. Whereas Charlene, because she's much more experienced, is like the one who's like, Dominic stays with me. I know my rights. What are you going to do? Like she's there to start playing the game, getting ready and posturing for what's going to happen next. Yeah. And it comes out, it comes out in almost in, in sort of Marciano's like movement. Like he's kind of wily and sh- <laughs> sh- you know, moving around. And again, the, the suits flapping in his, around in his massive jacket. <laughs> his massive right. Jacket. And, and, and versus her, who, she's just so sort of grounded and centered and calculating and just sort of sets up the nice sort of difference between these two in a, in a beautiful way. I'm by the way, um, I'm Canadian, so I sort of fall in between. I guess like I would, I would be half sort of shitting my pants. If <laughs> I agree. Uh, you know, that's the Austra- you know this sort of Commonwealth sort of uh, mindset, right? It's like I think I'm in trouble. Like if a cop comes up to me, but in American TV shows, they're like, eh, whatever. It's all good. Yeah. Um, uh, so before we tie up this minute, Adam promised some heat stories. You were Val Kilmer's stand-in on that. F- how 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 is he as a dude? How is Val he Kilmer was, as a person? I mean, it, it, yeah, this was 2007. He was, to me, like the funniest guy. I ha- I have sort of this long history. I, I like I had seen you know the movie Thunderheart. Yes, it was one of his first movies, and I saw that in theater back in in Vancouver. And I just I was I just this guy came on, and then of course Top Gun. I was I was really young then, and I didn't I didn't get to see Heat in the theater, but he just—he was this guy that I grew up with, and the, the hits just kept coming. And and uh, yeah, I, I I don't exactly—it's uh, not exactly like something I put on my resume that I was Val Kilmer stand in. Not on account, not on his account, but it's just like I'm not—I'm not at all like Val Kilmer. I mean, I'm a white guy, but I'm like I'm sort of small. But I—I I happened to be working for a producer at the time, and they were doing a movie. And with Val, and it was an opportunity to sort of just, and I, you know, I was to just to be around acting. him, just to be around him. Yeah, and 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 it, and it was it, it, they shot in Echo Park here in LA outside. Basically, it was this, the whole movie took place in one day. It was called Columbus Day. Hmm. It was such a, it was a really cool, ambitious idea, and and uh, so I basically got to hang. I, it was an opportunity to hang out and watch Val Kilmer work for. Hmm three weeks in echo park, which, um, so I just, I was like, sign me up. I had a buddy. I'm not even as tall as he is, but like <laughs> I had he, a buddy of mine 
uh, had some lifts. So I put those in my shoes and I put on some boots and like a bigger jacket. And I don't know, I, I pulled the wool over somebody's eyes and I was <laughs> they're like, okay, yeah, we need somebody. Cause the other guy dropped out literally. Um, so that was, that was, that was sort of my, my, my experience. And he, and he was great. I would, you know, I, my job was to, you know, it, it's not a glorious job and I didn't want to be a pest, but I, uh, so I wouldn't, I, w- I had to sort of, uh, choose my battles, so to speak. But if there was an opportunity, and one time we were downtown shooting, and I was like, "Val, like, where? Like, can you tell me about the shootout for Heat?" And he, <laughs> he, I, I, I walked up to him and sort of gently just because there was an opportunity. It was a window, and uh, he sort of looked at me, kind of tall. He smiled and he said. I'm working on my Clint Eastwood, and that was about it. So that, that, that was about uh, that was about as much as I got out of him. So, uh, but he knew that I I was a fan and I liked uh, you know was sort of watching every every bit of his move, and uh, yeah, it was really it was just a it was it was amazing. And you also said that uh, as a part of another project you were writing, you interviewed a cop who was in L.A. robbery homicide, and they had a heat poster on the wall. Yeah, so I just I chased down uh, just for research. I, I found this LA this cop um, who I was really fascinated with. I read an article in the LA Times, and so he offered to sort of take me down to um, robbery homicide. And he works this cold case division there, and uh, it was just it was so cool to see. Like you know, obviously this wasn't where they shot the movie or anything like that, but. Um, you know, growing up with the movie, I had, I just had this vision of what it was. And, and so when you're actually there in the robbery homicide division, (laughs) uh, and just to see like a heat poster on the wall, it was just, it was, it was a trip, especially for a heat dork like myself. You're like, that's your movie. That's your movie. (laughs) Yeah. I, I kept, I kept my cards a little close, uh, when I was in the oh, yeah. in the hall, yeah, you, you of, can. You, you're a professional. I'm sure you kept it cool. I would have been wigging out on the inside, absolutely too, to be talking to robbery homicide division cops, um, who I've yeah. you know talked about so much on this show and thought about so much. This whole um, uh, so I have I, I have one one sort of thing I wanted to bring up that oh, I yes. uh, my 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 other heat story is that when I was an actor, I was in Toronto with my my dear friend Adam McDonald. We were working on them um, on just trying to be actors and we were so enamored by Pacino's performance, which, um, you know, cause it was so crazy and fun and sort of bombastic at the same time. But, um, there was a, his line where he says, uh, Neil is gone. Bam. Bye bye. Motherfucker. You are good. Yeah. I, I could, I couldn't like that line. I was like, who puts bam in the middle of that sentence? <laughs> and so I was convinced I had to know if it was actually his choice or if it was scripted. So I went and got the heat script and, and sure enough, it is in the script. Yeah. Um, but I know there's been a lot of talk about like, you know, he was actually supposed to be, um, bumping cocaine and stuff. And, and I first heard that story. I was on a plane, and I'll keep this quick, but uh, I was on a plane. I was going to Vancouver. I was up front because I was working, and there was a guy next to me, and I was, I don't know, I was listening to my Radiohead CD or whatever at the time, my, my disc man with my 12 <laughs> tracks. And, and I started talking to him, and 
he says, uh, oh, yeah, I'm going to shoot a movie in uh, Alaska with Al Pacino. And I said, who are you? <laughs> of course, it turned out to be Chris Nolan. Oh, my God. And so he was the one who told me on a flight back in or sorry, early 2000s that Pacino was, was supposed to be bumping coke. And to me, like I know a lot of people are sort of disappointed when they hear that. But to me, I was actually like, oh, that makes so much sense. Like it, it made sense for those sort of crazy. And I know it was post-scent of a woman kind of devil's advocate times. But to me, it was like having that conversation just made so much sense and crystallized something to me in a, in a beautiful way. Oh, my God. I, we've talked about Chris Nolan many times on this show. Yes. But the fact yes. that he knew about that in early 2000s, that's a, that's a, that is a top-shelf heat geek. That means there's only one thing that he did. It means that he was already grilling Pacino in the pre-production of that movie about <laughs> heat details um, well before that. Look, oh, my God, that's amazing. I've always thought Insomnia was a heat. That's the heat sequel. That's literally Chris Nolan doing a heat sequel with Vincent Hanna. Like, Ooh, what, yes, what, I like that. What happens like to Vincent it. Hanna when there's no more Neil McCauley? Well, he starts to cut corners and does really nothing. Oh, that's things. so good. That's so good. That Which which kind of continues to reaffirm my theory. Oh, my God, that's an amazing story. I... I have really mixed feelings about him bumping Coke. My thing is, I, I I love the idea. And I think if you watch it scene for scene, almost every time he is in an extreme emotion that people sort of characterize as his scent of a woman, devil's advocate, owl style of acting, it is when he's either charged up from a criminal, like that he's encountering a criminal or he's, he's doing this high, high uh, intensity um, interrogations and trying to intimidate people. But there are so many absolutely stellar, deeply quiet moments for his character too, where he just conveys information. And I would argue, and I can't, I'm not going to spoil us diving into the, in this minute, but I think that, People talk about De Niro in the tunnel in this movie and saying that his face and the, you know, the absolute just like cacophony of different emotions that are just rippling through every expression in his face is like one of the most unbelievable close-ups in cinema. I agree. <laughs> yeah. But I would put that that tunnel scene with Pacino's final realization moments as he's nursing Neil's hand at the end of this film as as close to or, or exceeding that moment. Like the realization moments and watching that through Vincent's eyes at the end of this movie is like a piece of performance perfection. I didn't mean that alliteration, but like it's a piece of performance <laughs> perfection that I just don't think many actors have ever hit in their life. And in a career that's as storied and as rich as his, it might be my favorite moment of any of his performances outside of maybe Godfather Part 2. Like... <laughs> Like it's it's so amazing. So yeah, like oh, it's I, such a I, great I, moment. I I, mm. I like that he could just be manic. Like he's just a manic guy, like crazy energy when he needs to be jazzed and intimidating. And then you watch him just sapped of energy. You know, going home, all he wants to do is watch the news cycle. All he wants to do is have a bourbon. He just he he doesn't, you know, that up and down. And the coke, I don't think it ruins it. But I think for me, I'm like, you know, I, I don't mind that that was on the cutting room floor. I like his mania. I'll I'll argue with anyone. And have um, <laughs> argue with anyone that his performance is outstanding. And if you watch it in a theater, his performance in a theater 
this movie in a theater, I think this is what people lose, is, is an incredibly intense experience to watch in a theater. It is a, it is a phenomenal thing compared to watching it at home. And Vincent's mania and, you know, blustery lines, they actually, like, help ease the tension of this hugely tense crime epic. <laughs> he, like, is, like, he punctuates it with some laughs, at least, in this movie. Um, so, yeah, it's a, it's a really interesting thing. Yeah, no, I like, and I, I, I agree with you. I think there's some great sort of quiet moments to Pacino's performance, and I think they're even stronger because they mm. are quiet. He, he doesn't sort of go crazy, especially, like, you know, just coming up when he's about to say, you know, Neil's here, I can feel it. You just, you see oh, the sort of, oh. The energy, like, yeah. the energy like, on his face. Like that, you know, he didn't blow that out of portion. That was really centered and, and great. And, and I and I, and I, I like that they actually cut out that the that he was doing coke, but to me it sort of anchored. Adam, I can't believe you were sitting something. next to Chris. No- Let's just stop. You were sitting next to Chris Nolan pre-insomnia. That is awesome. Let's yes. Just- and the only reason I knew who he was was because this is before deadline or anything but i had sort of tried to you know you try and read things and i was like oh yeah you're the guy who did the backwards movie you know the one that went yeah (laughs) because memento had just come out and i hadn't seen it but i had read about it and uh yeah who knew oh and oh and to go go full circle i um when they were doing because i didn't get to see the heat when it came out on its uh in in the theater i was a little too young but when I heard the announcement that they were doing a, um, you know, the 2017, I was like, all right, I'm, I'm going wide with asks, <laughs> you know, and, and, and like, I have no desire to go to the Oscars if I don't have purchase in it. I and mean, I don't want to go to, I don't need to go to those shows. But when I heard there was that, I was like, no, I'm going wide. I'm calling my agent. I'm calling everybody I know. <laughs> and they all, nobody had a ticket, but God bless you. My wife was able to get me a ticket. Uh-huh. So I got to, and I got to see it on the big screen, amazing. which uh, was amazing. So I feel like the um, kid talking about his special toy, because <laughs> like they were all there, and it was it was it was a trip, you know. And you weren't there, and I feel so like I wish you were there. I, I well, look, I, I you're like maybe the second or even third person that I know has been in that audience. And so the the, the, the couple of guests, the Joe Lynches and the U's that were in the audience on those nights watching, it makes me happy that. People who love this show and want to contribute to it were there. In Australia, I've been very lucky. Like, I hadn't seen Heat on a big screen either. And earlier um, last year, uh, there was a, um, a an American Essentials Film Festival that was doing a retrospective about LA movies. So I got to see the 4K Director's Definitive Edition on the big screen with an audience, which was amazing. And we did we did a live podcast episode um, to coincide with that. And and uh, now, you know, as we're recording, it's in February. Um, and in March um, in Australia, Heat on 35 mil is coming to one of our Sydney boutique theatres for two sessions. And um, wow. and uh, <laughs> I was talking to my best friend about it. I'm like, oh, dude, Heat's coming 35 mil. It's like, it's not the direct, you know, it's not the director's definitive edition. It's theatrical cut. It's the movie that, you know, we use for one Heat minute. And I said, I, I said, I'm definitely going to see one. I might see two. And he, and he just stopped me. He goes, who are you kidding? You're going to see two. Like, you're going to both sessions. <laughs> I went, yes, you're right. I am going to see two. <laughs> it's like, of course I am. It's, it's going to be on the big screen, a huge audience, 35 mil. Like, that. you can't beat that. You can't beat that. So, yeah, it's just one of those things. It's going to be such a, um, such a cool thing to see on a big screen again. I'm so glad you got to see all those guys there together. 
And 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 one of the stars of that show in the Q and A was Mr. Michael T. Williamson, who we're talking about in this minute, telling great stories about how both Pacino and Mann said that he was robbed for not getting an Oscar nomination as uh, Bubba Gump in Forrest Gump, and they uh, and they got him in the movie. Oh, that's so heartwarming. When you hear that stuff, oh, just and they I, paid I just... a guy out. They there was a guy cast as Drucker. They paid really. Him. Yeah. Oh wow! I didn't know that. Little I tidbit. need to know who that was. That's a like that's a heat tidbit. If there, if you know anyone listening, mail at oneheatminute.com. I need to know who that is. Like, there's there was someone cast as Drucker. I would love to know who it was before Michael T. Williamson because Michael T. Williamson is so amazing. Like, it's a great, it's a phenomenal choice. But they were both like, yeah. oh, the Oscars snubbed him. No way. It's got to be some. You know, it's got to. We've got we've got to write this wrong. Yeah, and how? I mean, you wouldn't think what you know watching. Forrest Gump being like, we need a, a tough homicide cop. Like, all right, I know, I got the guy. <laughs> okay, yeah. <You> Gump. <laughs> and and look, he, and he, later on, a phenomenal Don King for Michael Mann as oh, well. Yeah. Phenomenal oh, Don King. So, you yeah. know, there's there's some great stuff. Look, Adam, mate, this has been an absolute pleasure talking to you for this minute. Thank you so much for coming and being a part of the show. Those stories Thanks, are just so- all-timers. All time. Oh, thank you. I I um <clears throat> I live on the east side and I drive. I'm, I'm gonna wrap up, but I I live I work on the uh, on Santa Monica, so it's like an hour. Sometimes it can be like an hour and a half commute, and I found this just in time while I'm driving like right <laughs> over the 110 where where they shot heat, listening <laughs> to your voice, and like it just is the best way to deflate after. A day of work and stuff. Thank you so much. Uh, keep up, keep up the good work, Blake. Oh, thank you, Adam. Guys, Adam Frost. Adam, where can we find you on Twitter? Uh, a Frostbite twenty three. Okay, I'll make sure, guys, that that's in the description of the podcast. A Frostbite twenty three. I'll make sure that's there, and I'll link it off to anything else that Adam's doing. But mate, thank you so much um, for being a part of the show. It's hugely. Uh, this show has just as I said before is like the campfire for this movie and we just keep drawing amazing people to be a part of it and you being a part of it is huge and those stories I thought the Val Kilmer story was good but Chris Nolan pre-insomnia knowing those details continues to prove my theory and Chris look if you're out there listening which you may be we'd love to have you on the show you know you are there's only a few other people in the world that could do this podcast and host it and I think you're one of them so if you're listening Chris you know, please um, reach out. Um, guys, as always, I've been Blake Howard. Um, uh, <laughs> uh, thank you, Mr. Garth Franklin, for our web design. Uh, Mr. Paul Davies for our theme. Um, and uh, we'll catch you on another episode of One Eat Minute just around the corner. And remember, you better get in there and stay in there and fix Charlene a drink, okay? <laughs>